hard for us to grasp, which is very dark uh, in its content, please speak to us. Please help us to know what this is, what this means to us and how we should apply it into our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So you might be wondering, what is a psalm like this doing in our Bibles? Even if you walked in today, you know, it's a brand new year, 2023, you're in a happy mood. Do you now feel a little bit depressed after reading this psalm? Now, the book of Psalms has lots of laments, right? Uh, Plenty of songs that express sorrow or grief. But see, Psalm 88 is really the only psalm that doesn't express anything positive. See, other laments, they tend to progress somewhere. They, they, They resolve, they cry out to God with remembering God's goodness shown in the past. These psalms usually end with a renewed trust and hope in God to save them, to, to, to keep them out of their misery, to save them. But not Psalm 88. See, throughout these 18, 19 verses, the psalm stays stuck. The psalmist stays stuck groaning, stuck in complaining. And the psalm closes on this really depressing note, darkness is my only friend. And so as we're confronted with the psalm today, we might be asking, what are we meant to do with this, right? Is this meant to be an example for us to follow when we face suffering ourselves? Or is it an example to avoid, right? Maybe this is someone who is weak in their faith. They're, They're so stuck in their despair that they can't see hope in their God anymore. Uh, or was this once a good response, but now that we have Jesus, now that we have the gospel, we, we, we're not allowed to pray like this anymore. Is that the case? What are we supposed to do with a psalm like Psalm 88? Well, first, let's walk through the psalm and then think through why this psalm might or might not be appropriate for us today to sing and to use. Uh, let's start with verse 1. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Well, it looks like there's something positive here, right? Uh, The psalmist identifies God as the one who saves, but what is unusual here is that this beginning, this short acknowledgement is, well, really short. See, other psalms, even laments, they, they heap praise on God. They paint elaborate images and pictures of God's saving character, holding up God's impressive CV, right? His mighty works, his compassion, his justice, his love, but not here. After this one brief one-liner, the psalmist simply goes straight into his requests. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. You see, right away we, we can tell this is not just any old prayer for help. He isn't quietly praying in comfort, listing out the things that he would like God to do for him. This psalmist is going through intense distress. He's crying out to God. He's crying out day and night, constantly, unceasingly begging God to pay attention. Please listen to me. Why? Because this is his experience, verses 3 to 5. 
I am overwhelmed with troubles and my life draw near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. Now, as we read these verses, one thing that comes up again and again is this guy's fixation with death. He is near to death, like one going down to the pit or Sheol, right? Set apart with the dead, like those who lie in the grave. Whatever trouble he's facing, he's so overwhelmed, so at the end of this rope that he pretty much considers himself dead already. So far gone that he may as well be lying in his grave. So weak, facing so many impossible obstacles that he just can't see any hope out of his situation. But what's the worst part? The worst part of all is that he has felt, he is feeling that God has abandoned him, cut off from God's care, no longer remembered by God. Now let's just pause for a moment because are you feeling a little bit uncomfortable here? How can this guy, this person of God, this man of God, say that God doesn't remember him? How can he say that God doesn't care about him. Is he allowed to say this? Because clearly, like from the scriptures, we know that's just not true, right? But now it even gets even more intense because who does the psalmist squarely place the blame? Verse 6, You have put me in the lowest pit. Your wrath lies heavily upon me. You have overwhelmed me. Verse 8, You have taken from me my closest friends. See, this is not even just, God, you allowed this to happen. It's not, you just sat there doing nothing while I was being pushed closer and closer into my grave. But see what the psalmist is saying here? You are responsible, God. You are the only one responsible for my pain and suffering. And to make things worse, not only is God the one inflicting the psalmist, But verse 8, God has also taken away all his support. His closest friends, God has made the psalmist repulsive to them. It's a picture of those whom the psalmist was closest with, those who should be comforting him, supporting him through his grief, but instead they look on him with disgust. They turn away. Maybe maybe they blame him. Maybe they're, they're mocking his pain. Maybe they avoid eye contact and and quickly skirt past if they see him on the street. So what is a psalmist to do? Verse 8, I am confined. I cannot escape. He's trapped, imprisoned by his loneliness and rejection. And he's losing all hope. Verse 9, my eyes are dim with grief. Now, the scriptures often tell of those who use their eyes to look towards God for their salvation over and over again, right? I lift my eyes towards the hills. To you, I lift my eyes. My eyes are toward you, O God. But not here. The psalmist's eyes are done looking. They've been waiting too long for God. And his eyes are on the verge of closing forever. He can't do it any longer. But then there's this surge of intensity again. He comes at it from another angle. He appeals to God to save him so that God might be glorified. Verses 9 to 12. 
I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? Now let's just remind ourselves here that in in the worldview of the psalmist here in the Old Testament, it's pretty safe for him to say, if I die, that's it. That's game over, right? The fuller revelation of the new heavens and the new earth, of eternal life, of the resurrection, that hasn't come to the psalmist yet. And so he appeals to God's character to bring glory to himself. He says, if I die, if I end up lifeless, buried in the ground, what good is it to you, God? How can I still praise you? Can the world see your greatness through your wonderful salvation at work in my life? Make your name great, God. Glorify yourself through me. And at this point, it's hard to tell whether the psalmist is uh, speaking in line with God's will. Yes, bring glory to you. Magnify your name, Lord. Do it for your sake. Or maybe he's trying to manipulate God for his own sake. Maybe it's a bit of both. But what is for certain here is that this psalmist is absolutely desperate. This is like his last-ditch effort to get God's attention. And so the psalmist brings his cry out to God in the most heart-wrenching way. Verses 15 to 18. From my youth I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. That's his summary. That's his life story. His whole life, since his youth, he has borne this suffering. All his life, he feels that God's wrath and terror is there destroying his life. This isn't just something light and uncomfortable for the psalmist, right? This is long, continual, protracted suffering. Too much. God, I can't take it anymore. With all my friends gone, I have no hope. I'm all along, all alone. You are not even answering me. I've had it. And so he ends, darkness is my closest friend. And so now that we've gone through the psalm again in more detail, I wonder how are you feeling now about this psalm? I wonder how many of you are wondering if this psalm is legit. Are we allowed to, again, let's, let's think about that. Are we allowed to talk to God like this? Accusing God for causing our suffering. Maybe even blaming God for being unjust towards us. Is this an example that we should follow? Now, I think for many of us, our knee-jerk reaction to Psalm 88 might be to write it off. You know, this can't be how we show faith in God. Maybe... You know, maybe an immature Christian might, might pray something like this. I mean, don't we remember Romans 8.28 that we saw a couple of weeks ago? And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, right? That's what the spiritual person would meditate on when they're going through suffering, right? How can we ever doubt God and His goodness in our lives? Or maybe we say, this psalm was for back then, right? Before God's people knew of Christ's victory over death 
of the glory that awaits for those who follow God's King. And so we read 2 Corinthians 4.17, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. There's no comparison, right? Again, we saw that in Romans. How can we complain no matter how hard it gets? How can we express such hopelessness? But I think there's more to Psalm 88 than first meets the eye. Instead, I'm going to propose that Psalm 88 is actually a gift to us as God's people. A gift to us to help us navigate through times of intense pain and suffering. Well, why do I say this? Well, first of all, the obvious one is that, well, it's part of the Scriptures, right? But it's not just part of the Scriptures. Not every single part of the Scriptures are, are to be emulated, right? But let's look at again at the, at the very top of the psalm, before even verse 1. Because who is this psalm written for? It's for the director of music. This means that this psalm is supposed to be sung by God's people all together on a regular basis. Do you find that surprising? How often have we sung a song like this at church? These lyrics, as dark as they are, they are for God's redeemed people coming together to sing to one another and to sing together to God as part of their worship. And so the question is how? How and why would God want his people to sing this psalm regularly and to pray these sort of prayers? Well, first of all, let's just take note what this psalm is not doing, right? This psalm is not complaining about God, right? Did you notice that as we read the psalm? The psalmist isn't venting his anger and frustration, talking about God's lack of faithfulness behind his back, as it were. But the psalmist is directing his complaint to God. And that makes a world of difference, doesn't it? By complaining to God, he's not turning his back on God or giving up on God because by talking to God, he's actually revealing his faith in God. So even as he feels that God isn't listening, he feels that God has rejected him, but by the very act of crying out to God, he is saying, I know, I, 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 I trust you. Even though this is how I feel, this is what it looks like to me. It feels like you're not there. You, it feels like you've abandoned me. But you are the only one that I'm crying out to. And at the same time, as the psalmist is crying out to God, he's also saying how wrong this picture is for him. Because he sees what's going on in his life and he's saying, surely God, this is not who you are. Because you are the God who saves me. And so he, he can't put the pieces together. Why are you allowing this to happen? I know this, all these truths about you, but this is not what I see in my life. And so the only way to resolve this for him is to cry out to God. See, this is a person who has great trust, a very deep trust in the God of the Scriptures. Even when his experience of life doesn't line up with his beliefs about God, he knows that it's still only God that can save him. And so he doesn't stop crying out to God. And this leads us to another way this psalm is helpful to those of us who might be going through deep suffering. Because in this psalm, God's sovereignty is declared. Now, 
We all hear this word, God is sovereign, he's all-powerful. We know this, right? That's part of our theology. But this is where the rubber hits the road. (laughs) Because at times of suffering, you might hear some Christians try and defend or protect God. They might suggest something like, look, all the pain that you're going through, it's not God. God is not doing this to you. It's Satan. Satan is doing this to you, not God. So take comfort. And so often this is done with good intentions, isn't it? It's meant to comfort us that God isn't doing this to us. But can you see the problem with that? The problem of God standing there powerless as Satan is having his way with us. No, that can't be right. That's not comforting at all. It doesn't even fit with the picture of God in the Scriptures. And so, as the, point, as the psalmist is pointing a finger at God, saying, you did this, God, we might not like the tone, but isn't that consistent with Scripture? Isn't that what the Bible tells us of God's powerful power? And more than that, can you actually see how this is actually testifying to God's ability, His unique ability to save? God put Him there, so God is the only one that can ultimately save Him from his current situation. Okay, so the theology is right. But again, what about the psalmist's tone? It sounds so disrespectful, right? We wouldn't even speak to a pastor like that, let alone God. Can we really say these words to God? And I think one hurdle that we face today is that as we wrestle with laments like this, is that typically we're reading these words on a nice, comfy sofa, bubble tea in one hand, big TV in front of us. Many of us haven't really suffered in a way that makes us feel like we can say these words. And that's probably true, isn't it? Many of us haven't. It's not like we sprain our ankle and then then bust out Psalm 88, crying out to God. That's That's not what this psalm is for. But the thing is, I know that some of us have been there. Even in the last year alone, some of us has been through incredible pain and suffering. And it could be many things. Maybe you've been suffering quietly without anyone knowing. Maybe it's years of chronic depression. And as you switch from one medication to another, each time seeing a bit of progress just to fall back into darkness after a little while seeing one counsellor after another, and you're just sick of telling the same story over and over again. No end in sight. And as the years drag on in your silent misery, you might wonder, why hasn't God answered my prayer? Are you even listening to me, God? Are you even there? And so maybe this might be your cry to God. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? Or maybe you've experienced the loss of a loved one, a family member, a close friend, your own child, a miscarriage, I don't know. And when that happens, when it's, when it's personal, it's no longer theoretical, it's no longer abstract, when it feels that our soul has been ripped apart, do you wonder, God, how can you allow this to happen? If you are in control, why did you make this happen? Why did you do this, God? I don't understand. You are a God of compassion and love. I know that. 
church to be okay to pause in the midst of suffering, to not just ignore our emotions and our doubts, to not try and move on, to get over it as quickly as possible, but to allow the faith of our brothers and sisters to be worked out in their own time between them and God. These psalms help us to offer words to others to process their grief. And when you think about it, this psalm is particularly beautiful because it doesn't make us rush this process of grief, not only that, but because it's, sorry, we know that, that it doesn't rush through the process of grief because of how it ends. Because it doesn't end on a positive note. It reminds us that it is okay to sit through the entire psalm and not come to a resolution in one sitting, right? But to keep crying out to God, even when you get to the end of the psalm and you still don't feel like God is there for you. But ultimately, to pray, lament, to cry out to God, whose sovereignty is unchallenged, it points us to the same God who has brought us the gospel. The God who speaks the gospel to us in our human weakness. The gospel is brought to us in our human weakness. The gospel isn't only for those who have it all together. Rather, it's quite the opposite, isn't it? And so why do we think we need to have it all together as we sit there in our suffering thinking, God wouldn't want me to listen to my pain, wouldn't wouldn't want to listen to my pain, my loneliness. God must... Only listen to me when, I've got, when I'm over it, when I've overcome my, my sorrow, when I'm rejoicing in all situations. No, if God had compassion on us while we were his enemies, remember, wouldn't he have so much more compassion on us now that we're his friends? Wouldn't he want us, if we are God's children, for us to be open and honest with him even more now? Of course, right? And so this psalm puts this truth into action for us. Now again, let's not be trite about this. I'm not saying we whip out Psalm 88 every time something slightly negative happens or inconvenient happens in our lives. But what I'm saying is that we need to be more comfortable with lament because it's something that the church hasn't done regularly. We don't sing songs of lament at church. We don't talk about lament very much at church. But we need to add it to our vocabulary. Add these words and prayers that cry out to God into our tool set so that we can have a much more balanced approach to dealing with suffering both in our own lives when it does eventually hit us, and it will, but also for others as well. Now, don't get me wrong. There will be a time, there is a time for us to lovingly point our sister's and brothers and sisters, to the sure and perfect hope that we have to get them to a place that they are reminded of Romans 8.28. There is a time for that. But for a little while, this psalm gives us a model of how to grapple with the fact that we still live in a broken world, that we are still broken people. A time is coming when we will be perfected, when we'll all look back on all our suffering, no matter how hard, and rejoice that it was all worth it. But that time hasn't arrived yet. 
And so as we wait, as we live in the world still full of hurt and pain, as we live in mortal and weak bodies that don't see God's glory fully yet, let's remember Psalm 88. To be reminded to cry out to God for his kingdom to come as it is in heaven. And to remind those hurting around us to cry out to God who does hear and who does care. And the God who will one day wipe away every tear from every eye. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Psalms like Psalm 88. We thank you that you are a God who understands, who acknowledges real emotions. That through Psalms like this, you give us permission to grieve and to cry out to you honestly. And we thank you that you are a God who cares about our honest emotions. You're not a God who just wants robots to follow you. We thank you for that, Lord. And so, Father, we pray that Psalms like Psalm 88 would actually equip us to face suffering both in our own lives but also in the lives of our brothers and sisters and maybe even our friends at work or or school or whatever might come our way. Please use Psalm 88 in our lives for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name.